Hello, folks, and welcome to The American Attic, where we uncover historical insights through hindsight. Presented by the Sacramento Historical Society and hosted by Eric Swigert, join us as we uncover the past through expert-led, dialogue-driven discoveries of California history and beyond. It was that time of year that many people refer to as an Indian summer, uh, that time of year usually in early to mid-autumn that temperatures remain unseasonably high and the weather is a lot better than people expect given that time of year. There were clear skies, not a cloud to be seen. The blue of the sky competed with the blue of the water in brilliance. In short, it was the type of weather that would make you want to go for a walk, maybe pop a bottle of wine and sit in a garden somewhere and just soak in the ambient comfort that this type of weather provided. Like a giant lung, the rhythmic expansion and contraction of the bay with the daily rush of commuters into the city and away in the evening was only slightly interrupted by those who chose to stay at home or find a sports bar to watch Game 3 of the World Series. In short, it was a typical Bay Area day. People sipped Irish coffees at the Yerba Buena Cafe. The sound of running cables echoed off the facades and storefronts of Polk and Hyde Street. Motorists navigated and probably cursed along the congested lanes of Market Street. Blankets rested on the green turf of Washington Square and North Park. And the occasional gull would float by lazily on what little breeze there was coming from the Pacific. Pretty typical, beautiful day in the Bay Area. Suddenly, and without warning, from somewhere up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, a seismic bell tolled. The waves of this toll rolled up through the densely packed peninsula and down to the sleepy shoreline of Santa Cruz. It rolled through East Bay communities where locals were donning gold and green in support of their Oakland champions. It rolled through bayside neighborhoods like the marina, flipping cars like pancakes on the griddle and rendering fire hydrants impotent. It rolled on indiscriminately, along and outward from the San Andreas Fault that was its origin and into the memories of those who survived that day. When the dust finally settled on that seismic tolling, over 60 locals had been killed and billions of dollars worth of damage caused. And the literal and figurative landscape of the Bay Area and those who lived there had been forever altered. This is the story of that fateful day, and these are the stories of those who survived it. The Loma Prieta earthquake, as it was later called, was a 6.9 magnitude earthquake. It was named after a hilltop in the Santa Cruz Mountains where it originated. The earthquake struck at approximately 5 o'clock, 5 p.m., on Tuesday, October 17th, 1989. And if you are expecting eyewitness testimony from yours truly, you will be disappointed 
and that's because I was 12 days old and about 3,000 miles away. So I don't have much to say about it, but luckily there is a sizable body of coverage from the Chronicle and other local publications on the event, on the aftermath, on the stories that we'll explore today. And, um, and the interesting thing about the coverage actually is that some of the reporters that were reporting on it were actual participants. They were characters in their own story, which you don't always get when you're opening up the newspaper or exploring the sports section or whatever. You know, when you're when you're checking in with your local news, you don't always get that that unique dynamic. One of the biggest factors or characteristics that made this particular event unique, not only was it the biggest earthquake to hit the Bay Area since the big earthquake, since the 1906 earthquake, where 80% of San Francisco was raised, not only was was that present with the 1989 earthquake, but there it also, its timing was of unique significance. The quake struck at almost the exact moment that the first inning would have started on Game 3 of the World Series. And this wasn't just any World Series. This wasn't kind of the run-of-the-mill, best team from the East takes on the best team of the West. I don't know that much about baseball, but that's beside the point. This was a significant World Series because the, the hometowns of the two participants were about eight miles apart. You had the Oakland A's who won the whatever division, and then you had the San Francisco Giants, which won their division, and they were competing in the World Series. I don't know where the, I think the first two games were played in Oakland, and Oakland won both of them. So Oakland was already favored. They're up 2-0 in the series. This was the first game to be held in San Francisco. So San Francisco was hoping for a big, big showing. First game of the series played in San Francisco. Come on, Giants. Let's show them how, how we play baseball. The game was slated to start around 5 o'clock in the afternoon, thereabouts. At 5.04, before the first pitch is thrown, the quake nails the stadium and, of course, the rest of the, the Bay Area as well. Candlestick Park was where the game was. I forgot to mention that. Candlestick Park is no longer, it doesn't exist anymore. They they demolished it, but they, they so they leveled Candlestick Park, but in 1989, that's where Game 3 of the World Series was. Oakland A's up, 2-0. to zero. Just for those of you that have been to baseball games, just you can imagine the the scene. People are buying their hot dogs. The place is, the place is full because the first inning was supposed to start by, by 5 o'clock. So the place is full. People are buying their hot dogs. Players are warming up on the field. The, the place is ready to go. Now, I've got a feeling that a few of my listeners might have actually participated or lived through earthquakes in the past. And probably you ask anybody who's out there and the biggest, one of the biggest issues about earthquakes, one of the biggest inconveniences about earthquakes is you can't see them coming. There's no warning. And so of course, the last thing you would expect to happen when you're at the ballpark, you've got your beer in your hand, you got your hot dog in your hand, everyone's happy is for this to happen. And at 5 o'clock, for about 15 seconds, a 6.9 magnitude earthquake shook the stadium like Shakira in a music video for 15 full seconds. 
along with the tens of thousands of other attendees at this event, were some on-duty military police sent over by the Presidio, the Presidio right there by the Golden Gate, were some attendees that were participating. There were military police that were going to participate in the opening ceremonies for the game. So they were in their, whatever the military term is for your class A's, maybe? Is that what they call? You're like, when you're looking your best, your your top uniform, your uniform that you wear when you're publicly presenting yourself. Anyways, they were wearing those uniforms, and they were getting ready to go out onto the field for the national anthem prior to prior to the first pitch being thrown. One of those military policemen from the it was actually a couple. One of those military policemen from the Presidio's name was Staff Sergeant David Langdon, and Langdon remembers vividly what he witnessed during those uh, 15 fateful seconds at the ball game. Quote, The spooky part was looking up in the stands, completely full. Imagine Candlestick Park completely coming apart and going back together. To see the slabs above the upper deck separate by feet and come back together and watch the light stanchions sway left and right from the apex to the center, about 15 feet either way. It was a sight to behold, if you've never seen it. Then to look out to the field and just see it roll as if it was an ocean, because it was moving just like a wave, just like water. Waves and waves and waves. Before panic could set in, it stopped, all within about 10 to 15 seconds. Fans reacted really great. They applauded at first, thinking that this is San Francisco and it would be apropos to have an earthquake during the World Series. Until we found out the devastation it had done. End quote. If you watch the coverage, and obviously this is only 1989, 30 years ago, there's plenty of coverage that if you have the time and inclination, you can go back and look at and explore. And if you look at the coverage... There wasn't really any devastation at Candlestick Park. I would imagine there was some damage, maybe some broken light fixtures, uh, maybe power power went out, something like that. But there was no structural damage that was that was done. I'm not an engineer, but there was no structural damage that I encountered during my research that happened at Candlestick Park. And Candlestick Park had a great life after that. It went all the way to what 2014, whenever they demoed it. <clears throat> so. So people at the stadium were, they were a bit, what's the word for it? Cavalier. They didn't, they hadn't known what had happened. But eventually, as they looked out over the bay and saw smoke from some of the fires rising, dust from some of the collapsed structures, perhaps, then it started to set in. There were people in the stadium that tuned into the local news. And as the minutes wore on, people started to realize what had actually happened. The wife of that military policeman who we just heard from, Sergeant Diane Langdon, and she remarked that during those 15 seconds of the earthquake, she says, quote, Above us, to the left, the light stanchions were swaying, not just shaking, they were swaying back and forth. The concrete on the upper deck moved apart, and you could see the sky on the other side. No one fell, but you could see the sections of concrete moving apart and then back together. There wasn't panic. We stood there and I thought, oh my God, what a day. Some timing, huh? End quote. I would imagine that some 
some of you out there have probably been through, lived through an earthquake. And I want to point out, because I've lived through a a few myself, that there is the noise of an earthquake is incomparable to anything else out there. I've often heard people refer to it as it sounds like a freight train or it sounds like a jumbo jet taking off or something like that. And although I appreciate the spirit in which those comparisons are being made, I have never, of all the earthquakes I've heard, which are not a lot, but they're enough, I have never heard one that sounds like a freight train. I've never heard one that sounds like a jumbo jet. There is no noise comparable to that of an earthquake, especially a significant earthquake. I guess, to me, a freight train sounds like a freight train. It's predictable and understandable. Most of us have probably heard a freight train or a train of some type in our lives before. And so we we have a, a basis to compare other freight train noises to. But an earthquake, there's nothing predictable about what an earthquake sounds like, about what an entire neighborhood shaking every fiber, every filament, every pipe, fixture, or facade, every roof or bridge or sidewalk shaking itself and shaking everything around it. What sound does that make? There's nothing like it. The sound of sheetrock separating, cables snapping, rebar buckling, two-by-fours groaning, under the stress of their foundations rolling like waves. It's not, there's not really a comparison that can be made there, at least in the earthquakes that I have heard along with feeling them. And I could imagine that to Sergeant Diane Langdon and her husband, David Langdon, and the other tens of thousands of people that are at Candlestick Stadium that witness this event and hear it, the sound of a stadium, every seat in that stadium, every light in that stadium, all of those things shaking uh, must have left a pretty indelible mark on on the people that were there. Obviously, what you see is incredible, but also what you hear can leave a pretty indelible mark during an event like this, of this significance. So as people were uneasily laughing off, the earthquake that had hit Candlestick and the fact that they are all they're all fine, the stakes were a little bit higher on the other side of the bay. Approaching Oakland on a section of the Interstate I-80 freeway called the Cypress section, there was a portion that was double decker, meaning they people above were going in one direction and the people underneath were going in the opposite direction. And for reasons that the engineers understood in the aftermath of this earthquake, the upper section of that freeway fell directly on top of the section underneath it, effectively pancaking the two of them together. And for those of you that have ever driven in the Bay Area at any point in your life, specifically on a weekday, specifically in the afternoon, you can imagine how crazy those roads must have been, or at least how congested those roads must have been. World Series or not, Tuesday afternoon, driving in the East Bay, I hope you got like a great podcast to listen to or a great 
book on tape because that is going to be that's a miserable driving. I've done it. I've done that commute for a while and um, and it can get pretty crowded out there on any section of freeway. So if a section of freeway collapses onto itself, that's a problem. That's a big problem. There was a, a first responder named Mike Hill, who was a firefighter in Oakland at the time, and he remarks on the immediate aftermath of that collapse and his impressions when he was approaching that collapse as a professional firefighter. As a professional, he was rushing there to see what he could do, and these were his remarks. Quote, I will never, ever forget my first view of that freeway. I was in the tiller bucket of our ladder truck, the driver's seat at the rear. We were rushing to the scene, and when we came around a brick building, there it was. I I couldn't believe it. To this day, nothing has ever struck me that hard. It was like something out of a Godzilla movie. There were people screaming, hollering, waving, every hellish sight that you could imagine, every rescue that you could imagine, end quote. Firefighter Hill and a host of other first responders rushed there, but believe it or not, they were not the first people there. Obviously, they were the victims, but as soon as that building collapsed and the 15 seconds of shaking ended, the first people to arrive there, the first the first people to arrive there were the first people that were there. And what you see at the at the Cypress Viaduct in Oakland is something that I'm going to talk about a little bit later. And it's something that that you see happen at different points throughout the Bay Area as this crisis unfolds. And that is the resiliency of the volunteers, the resiliency of, of the average Joe, of the person who's just there and happens to not be as injured as the person next to them. And so before Firefighter Hill can even arrive at the scene, by the time he gets there, there are people running around. There are people raising ladders to get up to the still still raised section. The Even though it's collapsed, even though the viaduct is collapsed, it's still hard to get to because it's still 20, 30 plus feet above the ground. And you have volunteers running around, climbing, manhandling their way up the side of this collapsed cement crumbling cement structure using rebar as handholds, exposed rebar, climbing up these walls to get to people who are trapped, to get to strangers who are trapped that they maybe would not have given the time of day to 10 minutes prior. But because 15 seconds of shaking earthquake nailed the Bay Area on October 17th, 1989, you're not a stranger anymore at that point. There are people in need and there are people who can help. Firefighter Mike Hill wastes no time getting to work. He arrives there. I don't know. I imagine someone has the numbers on the amount of vehicles that were crushed beneath the upper and lower structures of the Cypress Viaduct. But he gets there along with the other first responders, and they just get to work. After after rescuing countless numbers of people, helping countless numbers of people, and referring to one specific rescue that he did, the first rescue that he did, he says, quote, turns out that was the easiest one we did all day. 
I can't even remember how many people we saved. There were simple pullouts we took from cars, people smashed under cement, people with their cars on fire, you name it. It went on all night. End quote. Believe it or not, not all firefighters that were on the scene were there as first responders. Some firefighters were there as victims. And that was certainly the case for off-duty firefighter Tim Peterson, who found himself approaching Oakland on 880 when the earthquake struck. He was on the lower level, and when it collapsed, he's driving along, and, and it's, it's amazing that he made it out, but he had a front row seat to some of the carnage that happened. And he remarks that as he's driving along, He's a big baseball fan, so he's trying to get back to the station out on Treasure Island to catch the the first inning of the game. And he remembers seeing a there's a BMW in front of him or something. Some lady was driving a BMW. There was another truck in a lane next to him in an adjacent lane. And then the way he describes it is everything goes dark. So he felt he feels a little rumble. Maybe, you know, maybe he hit a bump in the road. Maybe he got a flat tire or something like that. And then he remarks that just everything went dark. When the shock wears off for Tim, he realizes that his truck has been crushed between the cement blocks to just about 20 inches worth of truck. And one of the most vivid memories he has of that that moment and the following moments is the smell of glass, the smell of broken windshield or broken automobile glass, which I had no idea, but apparently it has a distinct smell to it when it shatters and a person is coated with it, like Mr. Peterson was when he was fighting for his life beneath two sections of 880. The 24-year-old firefighter was badly injured, but he was conscious He was conscious enough to recall what the immediate moments after the collapse were like for him. Quote, It was loud at first. So as soon as it happened, a lot of horns made contact. So all horns around the cars were just blaring, and you could hear people screaming way off in the distance. End quote. It turns out the 24-year-old Tim Peterson had sustained two broken ankles, a broken shoulder, and a number of broken ribs. As I mentioned, his truck had been smashed into about 20 inches. And he wasn't sure if he was going to make it. As he remarks, he was ready, he was getting ready to meet his maker. Unbeknownst to Tim, that among the first responders that were rushing to the Cypress Viaduct to do what they could for the survivors and rescue those that were still trapped was his father. Tim Peterson's father, Dave Peterson, was among some of the first responders to to arrive on scene. And as Dave recalls, as the minutes were on and eventually hours were on, Peterson kept hearing his name come across the radios that were being used by first responders. It took him a second, but soon he realized that his own son might be buried under the cement and concrete that he was looking at and trying to help rescue people from. 
And if that's not one of the most mind-bending scenarios to find yourself in, I don't know what is. You arrive on scene. You're a professional. You arrive on scene to do your job. I would imagine you will never find a firefighter who is happy to be doing their job. They do their job because it's their duty, but no one's happy to come across a collapsed freeway structure. No one's happy to come across a car accident. No one's happy to find somebody in need. But you can imagine that when these first responders arrive, there's a certain level of professionalism to it. They roll up their sleeves and they say, let's get to work. But imagine how hard it must be to maintain that professionalism, to maintain that that impartial judgment that's required by these professionals if you found out that your own family was buried underneath the rubble you were trying to sort through, that your own family, your own son was among those that you were trying to rescue. I don't know if I could be impartial at that point. I don't know if I could be impartial in my search. I might be helping out one person and drop everything and just start digging. What do you do in that situation? I hope I never find myself in that situation. However, Dave Peterson found himself in that situation when he heard he heard that his son might be one of the victims come across his headset, come across his radio that he was using. Luckily for Tim, he was one of the few that made it out of the Cypress structure intact. The Cypress structure ended up being the deadliest area, the deadliest site of the earthquake. 40 plus people, if I'm getting that number right, perished on that section of, of highway. And luckily, Tim Peterson was not one of them. It took about five or six hours for firefighters to tunnel through the wreckage to make it to Tim's totaled truck, Tim's crushed truck. And um, and a strange twist of fate, in addition to the strange twist of fate that brought father and son together at the emergency site, was that the firefighter to first reach Tim in his crushed truck was named Andy Papp, who was a veteran firefighter of the Oakland FD. And he reaches Tim Peterson. And I would imagine there were some encouraging words. And he eventually pries Peterson from the rubble, pries Peterson from the wreckage of his truck. And along with the other members of the firefighting team, emerges from the rubble and and successfully rescues Tim. Tim, as I mentioned, sustained multiple injuries, and it took him months to recover, maybe six months at least, six months to a year. But the strange twist of fate is that same firefighter who was the first face that Tim saw after he thought he wasn't going to make it. Eventually, Tim serves with this with this firefighter. Eventually, Tim changes fire departments and actually works with Andy Pat professionally. In 1991, they ended up working together. And I think their collegiality, their working together lasted over 10 years. They were working together. And Tim Peterson, every October 17th anniversary, the anniversary of the quake, calls up Andy Papp, calls up some of these other guys, and expresses his gratitude to these first responders for risking life and limb 
to crawl into a teetering, tottering structure to pull him out when he didn't think he was going to make it. And when those in the BMW in front of him and the truck next to him didn't make it. Now, eight miles away on the other side of San Francisco Bay, in the sleepy and scenic bayside community known as the Marina District, there was another drama unfolding. Originally, the marina was an area made up of mostly sand dunes and marshland, something similar to what you would see for those of you that have visited the Chrissy Fields between the marina and Fort Mason. It looked similar to that, but in the late 1800s and early 1900s, as the population of San Francisco exploded, starting with the gold rush, and in the decades after that, San Francisco just became a very popular western port, and a lot of people came there to settle. Land, obviously, became very, very scarce. And so the marina, which was originally kind of a backwater, people did not want to go there. Developers started to look at it and say, maybe we can do something with this. And so what ended up happening is developers and entrepreneurial-minded people began to look at the marina and say, yes, we can do something here. How are we going to do it? Well, what they did was they began dredging the bottom of San Francisco Bay looking for materials they could use to reinforce this marshland, to add into this marshland and kind of raise up the ground and make it a place that could be built upon. Another main source of materials used to reinforce the marina was actually the ruins of the 1906 earthquake, which very well may be another episode of this podcast, but that is putting the cart before the horse, and we're not going to do that. But for those of you that already know, in 1906, there was a seven-point-something earthquake that rattled the entire, essentially, Northern California and leveled most of San Francisco. Between the earthquake and the subsequent fire, 80% of San Francisco was destroyed. And actually, a lot of that debris and ruins was used to lay a semi-suitable foundation for building in the marina. Again, this is by, by now it's kind of the early 1900s when the marina starts to be developed and built upon and turning into the residential community that it is today. And by 1989, when the Loma Prieta quake struck, it was already a thriving residential neighborhood with the Palace of Fine Arts on one end, Lombard Street on the other, and obviously some stunning picturesque views of the bay, Angel Island, Alcatraz, and obviously the Golden Gate. However, as the 6.9 earthquake shook up the bay and the inhabitants there and caused the collapse of the freeway overpass over in Oakland, not everyone was as lucky as firefighter Tim Peterson was to be rescued from the rubble and later be able to return to life as usual. Bill and Janet Ray had not yet reached their third year of marriage. They were looking forward to moving out of their cramped apartment in the marina and into a house in Montclair where they could continue working in the Bay Area and potentially start a family and continue with the rest of their life. Bill was 33 years old, 
and Janet was 28 years old. Both of them were home when the quake struck, and their apartment and the larger building it was part of collapsed in around them. After the shaking finally stopped, the two find themselves pinned against each other and entombed in the wreckage that was once their apartment building. Both of them were conscious and were able to talk to each other. And in the minutes after the earthquake, they began to strategize about how to get out of this situation. Bill originally began banging on some planks. He was banging on whatever he could reach to get the attention of anyone that would be outside. And he didn't know who was out there. He, he barely knew where he was in the wreckage that was his apartment. But he began knocking on boards and planks to try and get somebody's attention that could, that could possibly help them. Eventually, he does get the attention of some neighbors. Unfortunately, Bill and Janet are unable to be easily reached. But as they communicate back and forth with the rescuers, they're told that firefighters are on the way, professionals are on the way, and Bill and Janet essentially begin a dialogue with each other to try and encourage each other, keep each other conscious and awake and alert to their, their precarious situation. As Bill and Janet are trying to calm each other's nerves and come to terms with their new situation, outside, volunteers are not waiting for the firefighters to arrive, and they actually begin impromptu rescue efforts. Volunteers begin grabbing any tools, implements they can use, and they're attempting to tunnel in to, the, to reach Bill and Janet from the outside. Amongst these volunteer rescuers is actually a carpenter, and this carpenter begins looking at the building and trying to strategize how, how he would go about rescuing them if he had built the building. And he picks a spot, and they start digging and they're feeling good, and, and they're, they're talking to Bill and Janet, who they are able to communicate, so they're able to talk to the victims and, and strategize that way as well. But eventually, these impromptu efforts end up hitting a brick wall, end up hitting a wall in the building that they did not expect, and the efforts to rescue Bill and Janet from that particular angle had to stop. However, by the time that rescue effort halts. The professionals finally do arrive. Fire truck number 16 arrives on the site and fire captain Bob Jabs takes one look at the building and decides he needs to call for backup. This is this is just a fire truck. It is outfitted to respond to emergencies. It has medical equipment, first aid equipment, but it does not have firefighting equipment. And the second Bob Jabs arrives on site, a thin column of smoke starts rising from the wreckage, and it's realized that not only is the wreckage in danger of injuring Bob and Janet further from simply shifting due to aftershocks or the, how unstable it is, but now you take that already dramatic situation and you add a fire potentially fueled by natural gas engulfing the area the stakes have just been raised. Now, as the firefighters begin to assess the situation and get a better understanding of what they are dealing with, they talk to some of the volunteers that were already there, and they're shouting back and forth, and they finally are able to pinpoint Bill and Janet Ray's precise location in the wreckage. Captain Jabs climbs through in 
a broken window and he once he pinpoints where he's going to start he begins to try chopping towards the rays with the axes that the firefighters brought and he's as he's doing this so he's chopping away into the debris trying to find a way in and as he's doing this he calls back to the volunteers and the volunteers begin shepherding tools back and forth between the truck to the firefighters that are working the crew that's there working and it's almost like that scenario that you see in the in the shows where there's a surgeon working very closely and the surgeon says scalpel forceps you know and the surgeon has those tools that he calls for and then there's the i don't know sioux surgeon we can call them and the sioux surgeon is there giving him the tools so that's kind of the scenario that we got here we've got the captain and his a couple of couple of um his, the partners from his truck are in this enclosed space, this little cavity in the wreckage where they're able to to see the rays, see where they're trying to go. They just can't reach them yet. That's what they're having using the tools for. And as all this is happening, unbeknownst to the rays, the fire is growing. Now, looking back at what happened in the marina, the experts have realized that not only were water mains broke, but also gas lines were ruptured in the earthquake. And what they think happened is in a lot of these fires that broke out in this beautiful neighborhood were actually fueled not just from the combustible material that made up the building, but was also fueled by gas leaks, which were essentially just adding literal fuel to the fire and causing these fires to act less like traditional house fires and more like combined miniature explosions, which, again, not the place you want to be if you're trapped in wreckage, not the place you want to be if you're a firefighter, if you're working, although they are trained professionals, so that's what they're there for. And as the professionals are working, as the firefighters are working, what started as a small fire, perhaps an electrical short, caused the gas line to go, and this small fire began building and building what started as a small fire soon became a raging inferno. The firefighters are chopping away with axes trying to reach the rays. Volunteers are handing them chainsaws through the broken window that they can use to get through some of the more stubborn building material. And soon they're able to get within grabbing distance of Bill Ray. So Bill Ray, again, is trapped. His wife, Janet, is pinned on top of him, and the firefighters are finally able to reach reach them, get within touching distance of them. And that's when Bill smells smoke. So the firefighters already knew that the building was on fire, but Bill and Janet Ray, trapped in that wreckage, they had not yet known that the building was on fire. And so you you can just imagine what that must have been like. Not only are you concerned for your own well-being because you are essentially crushed within within your own home, but then you realize that that home is also burning. The the urge to panic has just gotten that much stronger. Now, by this time, a official fire engine had arrived, complete with fire hoses, small reservoir of water, and a ladder. However, as the firefighters go from hydrant to nearby hydrant to tap into the pressurized water system that feeds those hydrants, they realize that those water systems had ruptured just like the gas lines had ruptured and that was happening to firefighters all over the marina that day not just those that were trying to rescue bill and janet ray and as firefighters go from 
hydrant to hydrant, try and tap it into the water supply, they can't get anywhere. And that is part of the reason why the fires were so devastating on that particular day. One particular firefighter who was in the cavity in that little space that the professionals were working at trying to get down to the rays commented that, quote, there was a closet wall in the way, so my partner and I kicked that out and started to cut a hole in the other side with axes. The building was at a severe angle. I looked and saw a wall glowing and went over and looked, and the whole other side of the building was on fire, end quote. You know, people sometimes say that they don't realize how much stuff they actually have until they have to move from one apartment to the next or one house to the next. And I feel like that could also be said when dealing with a situation like this, and you're looking at the wreckage of what was once a multi-unit apartment building, and you can just imagine the sheer volume of materials that belong to the building and also personal effects that are just scattered into essentially a giant massive pile. And then think about the difficulty of trying to cut into that pile to rescue people that are trapped somewhere underneath. That is the experience that Bill and Ray Janet were having. That is the experience of the volunteers and the firefighters that were trying to rescue them. And as the story of what is happening in this collapsed apartment finally reaches the onlookers that had assembled outside this building, finally reaches them, so they have an idea about what's going on inside the wreckage in this little chamber that was carved out by rescuers, The rescuers are still inside, within touching distance of the rays, but unable to make any headway. Why? First of all, the chainsaw that they were using broke on the the nails and the other difficult debris that it was being used to cut through. So chainsaws are not made to cut through construction-grade nails that some uh, some of these apartment buildings were built out of. So the volunteers finally deliver a heavy multi-purpose saw that firefighters use to cut through car parts sometimes. And they begin taking turns, wielding it to try and get down to the rays and free them up to, to remove them from the debris. But veteran firefighting captain Bob Jabs remarked, quote, Being a firefighter in a situation where you have a fire and no way to put it out and people trapped? That's a nightmare, end quote. Eventually, as the firefighters are working feverishly in this cramped chamber amidst a ruined apartment building, someone shouts in from the street saying, get the heck out of there. The building's collapsing. Not only is the building on fire, but it's also collapsing with three firefighters and two trapped victims inside. The firefighters scramble out of there thinking that the building was about to collapse in on them, on all of them, and the chamber fills with smoke. And by the time the firefighters make it out of the wreckage, they are beside themselves with with grief, anger, frustration. They had been working at this for over an hour, trying to free these two people. It was at that moment that Bill Ray realized that the firefighters were gone. They had left in such a rush, they did not even take their tools with them. He determines the situation to be well, 
past desperate and realizes that it's now or never. He's got to do something to free himself and his wife. As he begins squirming and moving around, trying to free up enough space for him to climb out and help his, help his wife out. And remember, they're pinned together, so if one of them is able to free themselves, that'll give the other person more literal wiggle room. And imagine that for a second, that feeling of being collapsed in the wreckage of an apartment building, and then having to free yourself from that wreckage. When I think about it, it seems like something akin to rolling in a pile of nails, broken glass, and wood splinters. And then if you introduce a little bit of heat to that equation, and you introduce a little bit of smoke to that equation, that might just give a glimpse of what Bill Ray and his wife Janet were going through as they try and as they realize that it's up to them to get out of the situation. Finally, Bill's able to to free himself and climb up into the crawl space that the firefighters were working in, and he turns around to help his wife. After struggling for a few moments to free his wife, Bill retreats out of the chamber driven out by fire and smoke and hoping to get someone that can help him because he's unable to free Janet by himself. In an interview Bill Ray gave at the one-year anniversary of the Loma Prieta earthquake, he remarked, quote, Then I got free, but she still wasn't. I tried to pull her out. Smoke was coming in. You could hear the flames cracking and popping. She couldn't pull herself loose, and I couldn't get to her. Then I left. I crawled out that hole. I realized my leg was broken because I couldn't move it. I crawled to the bathroom and stood up in the broken window. I wanted somebody to come back and help me because I thought we could have gotten her out. End quote. An onlooker who was on the street watching this drama unfold reported that, quote, all of us who were there remember him standing in that window, gazing at our street full of chaos. He stood while we shouted for him to jump. Then he tilted forward and slid headfirst ten feet down the slanting wall to a broken roof at street level. End quote. Cheers erupt from the crowd when they see that one of the victims was successfully rescued. But those cheers are cut short when the blazing building that Bill had just emerged from collapsed into itself with Janet still inside. The 33-year-old Bill was rushed to the local hospital with a broken leg and multiple cuts and contusions all over his body from being trapped in that, in that collapsed apartment building. He has since recovered from those physical injuries he sustained as a result of the Loma Prieta earthquake. However, the wound of losing a loved one, those type of wounds, never really fully heal. In the aftermath of the Loma Prieta earthquake, similar dramas are unfolding throughout the marina and also throughout the larger Bay Area in the hours after the 6.9 earthquake struck. 
a 56-year-old office manager was successfully freed by the heroics of another local firefighter, who she still keeps in touch with to this day. Fires blazed on across the marina, and untapped fire hydrants sat by unused. Another of the lasting stories from the marina that day was the grit and the gumption that strangers showed each other when they teamed up with firefighters to help out those in desperate situations similar to that of the Rays, to help those firefighters work as quickly and efficiently as possible. Because in the minutes after the quake, the ratio of firefighters to fires, or the ratio of firefighters to crises, was greatly lopsided. The number of crises far outmatched out the fire, the manpower of the firefighters. And so into that gap, into that void, stepped up strangers, stepped up neighbors, stepped up people that didn't even know each other to help stem the tide of tragedy that is sweeping through the marina at this time. Finally, just when the situation in the marina looks to be most dire, out of the smoke that was blanketing the bay arrives a fireboat called the Phoenix. Now this fireboat was an unused relic from a bygone time. It pulls up as close as it can to the marina, and if my memory serves, it was the only fireboat in the arsenal of the San Francisco Fire Department. For lack of use, there simply weren't that many fireboats available or used in the Bay Area at that time. And the fireboat knows that it needs to get as close to the marina as it can to maximize the benefit it can bring to the beleaguered neighborhood. Now, the boat comes with its own pump and hundreds of pounds of hoses and all of the gear a fireboat would would normally have, but a lot of buildings are burning far from the waterfront, blocks away from the waterfront, and there's not enough firefighters to carry the hoses to the blazes, to carry the hoses to where they need to go. And responding to this need, scores of citizen volunteers, average Joes, pencil pushers, they form hustle lines, and they, under the guidance and under the, under the direction of the ranking fire captain, they jog these hoses to the most desperate blazes to try and help put them out by any means necessary. And once those hoses finally reach their final destinations, with a roar, the phoenix pumps jump to life and the fireboat begins pumping seawater straight out of the bay to use it to extinguish the numerous fires blazing through the marina. And for 15 hours, the Phoenix crew worked ceaselessly on the pumps and on the controls of the fireboat to ensure that water reached all of the parched districts and neighborhoods of the marina that were unable to receive water due to the water lines breaking in the quake. And just to give you an idea about the alternative scenario that could have played out is that if these volunteers did not, if, if these, these citizen volunteers did not fill that void left by the 
understaffed, undermanned firefighters that were there. The firefighters would have been left to deal with the crisis on their own, await reinforcements from fire districts and fire departments in other cities that were less devastated as San Francisco and Oakland and some of these other communities. They would have waited until the proper tools, proper equipment arrived before they could start fully addressing the crisis that was happening in the marina. But because you had these nobodies, these strangers, chip in and just sense that moment, that need, and step up to the plate, the firefighters were able to respond more effectively at a more rapid pace and end up reducing the destruction that happened in the marina and perhaps even saving more lives. And in describing the efforts of some of these impromptu volunteers amidst the backdrop of the Loma Prieta earthquake, one eyewitness volunteer, so a participant in the rescue efforts, commenting on his efforts and those of his partners, said, quote, ladders and screwdrivers and whatever they could bring, carjacks, whatever, and they brought them back, and we climbed up there with ropes and started rescuing people. End quote. He's describing there the spontaneity that can happen when a crisis occurs, people are in need, and then onlookers respond to that need. There are reports on the other side of the bay in, in Oakland of people breaking into businesses in the aftermath of the Loma Prieta earthquake, but they are not breaking into those businesses for the reasons that you might suspect. They are not looting. They are not going through trying to grab whatever they can before the authorities arrive. Those individuals are breaking into businesses. In one instance, a a business is broken into and ladders start getting handed out through windows to to reach the people that were that were crushed beneath the overpass on the Cypress Viaduct in Oakland. So they're they're breaking into businesses, but people are realize that this is a desperate situation. And sometimes you have to recognize what is in your control to do to help your help your fellow rather than waiting for the authorities to make that call. Sometimes we have to make that call. One elderly woman in the marina who was rescued from a collapsed building, she remarked that, quote, They were people we never knew. I was rescued, and, I, and they never knew us, but they carried us in their arms down the stairs and out into the sunlight, end quote. Longtime marina resident and local dentist Dr. Bratasani, when commenting on this phenomenon of volunteer response to this crisis, remarked that, quote, there's nobody that didn't pitch in. It was the best source of community. It kind of makes me want to cry a little because I wish people were like that all the time, end quote. At the time, San Francisco Mayor Art Agnos described it as, quote, we were made of the right stuff. There was no looting. There was no crime. It was people going out into the streets and helping each other in a fashion that we haven't seen in a lot of American cities like we saw in San Francisco, end quote. 
So the stories that emerged from the Marina District in the days and weeks and months that followed after the Loma Prieta quake, they lend a different tone. They lend a different spirit to the crisis itself and then the response, particularly the response to the crisis from the San Francisco community, from the Bay community. And as the smoke cleared in the aftermath of that quake, there were many people that doubted the marina's future. There was something like four to six billion dollars worth of property damage, 150 buildings or something close to that were damaged or destroyed. And there were many people in the community that if they had access to insurance money, they just left. And many people were doubtful if the marina would be able to rebound from such a disaster. However, a curious phenomenon started to happen about a decade after the Loma Prieta quake struck. Booksellers in the marina started to notice that parenting books were flying off the shelves of some of these small local bookstores. What ended up happening is the stroller-pushing and diaper-changing families that the marina so desperately needed to lend a certain youthfulness to the neighborhood had finally arrived. In 1989, the marina's population was a little less than 6,000, and by 2019, it has more than doubled. The average age of the marina has fallen from 38 in 2010 to just 36 a decade after. The marina has become a vibrant and attractive place to live for those in California who can afford to live there. And that is a big asterisk next to living in the marina. But that'll be a topic for a different podcast. In describing the state of the marina nowadays, longtime San Francisco native Roman Peltz remarked that, quote, there are more choices here now. You can say that. Even though I do miss some of the old days, Chestnut Street had a very old feel with old people and a couple of good restaurants back then, before the quake. And now, it's all young. Everybody has a baby and a dog. End quote. In the decades after the Loma Prieta quake, street festivals have come to the fore. Restaurants are opening up and business is injecting a stimulus in the economy and in the social fabric of the marina. In 2019, 56-year-old Rose Masanati, who grew up in the marina right across the street from baseball legend Joe DiMaggio, she remarked that, quote, I remember a realtor saying, way back when all those buildings were still just rubble, that this neighborhood was going to be gold. And boy, was he right. And it's beautiful. End quote. Hey there, Eric with the Untold Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this particular episode and were able to learn from some of the stories that you encountered. Now, I hold no monopoly on the interesting historical topics I cover, so if there's some theme, someone, or somewhere you'd like to hear about, shoot me a quick message or a comment and I'll be sure to add it into the queue. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to stay curious.